The podcast world is growing bigger every day and Himalaya wants to help you navigate it. Himalaya is a brand new podcast app where you can find every single podcast you love and some future faves. Whether you're a podcaster or a fan, Himalaya has got your back. Discover personally curated playlists and show your favorite podcasters some love with Himalaya's tip jar. It's free, it's the easiest to use, and we're adding cool new features every day. Go to your app store, download Himalaya, that's H-I-M-A-L-A-Y-A, and don't forget to follow the Killer Instincts podcast once you're there. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Killer Instinct. If you are new here, hi, my name is Savannah. I am your host here on Killer Instinct. Thank you so much for joining in for another episode. So, you guys, for today's episode, we are talking about an unsolved case of a little girl that hits way too close to home for me. And the reason of how I found out about this case is pretty crazy, I guess you could say. Um, So for today, we are talking about the murder of Stephanie Crow. And the reason I found out about this case to begin with is because not too long ago, a couple weeks ago, me and my boyfriend were actually walking through this place called Dixon Lake, I believe is what it's called. It's this really, really gorgeous nature reserve surrounded by a bunch of trees and land, and it's located in Escondido, California. And if you know anything about Escondido, you know that it is super dry and hot and almost desert-like, and so to have this super pretty nature area to go and you can barbecue and there's a really pretty lake and really pretty hiking trails. It's a really, really cool place. But anyways, so me and Dane were walking through this nature reserve and I saw this plaque. So the plaque said Stephanie's Grove and it also had her birthday as well as the day she passed away. And when I did the math in my head, I saw that she had passed away at 12 years old. So me being me, I obviously was very curious as to what this was. And when I Googled her name, I found out more about her story and I was actually in such shock for a couple reasons. One, that this case had hit so close to home, but also that I had never heard about it before, considering the fact that it is unsolved. The ups and downs in this case is absolutely insane. And especially because, like I said, it hit so close to home and I just happened to stumble upon this plaque that had her name and her birthday and just the way of finding it and me stumbling upon it was so untraditional in the way that I find my cases typically. So because of that, and I know this is going to sound so cliche, but it definitely felt like it kind of happened for a reason. And so I really wanted to talk about today's case because like I said, it's unsolved and I'm really hoping that one day Stephanie can get the justice that she deserves. So for today's case, I'm going to be walking you through Stephanie's murder as well as the trials that follow afterwards. And you'll see something new in today's case that we've never really talked about here on my podcast nor on my channel, and that is police coercion and how poorly this case was first handled. So let's get into it. So Stephanie Crow was a 12-year-old girl living in Escondido, California at the time of her murder. She lived at home with her parents, Cheryl and Stephen, and she had an older brother who was 14 years old, so two years older than her, named Michael, as well as a sister named Shannon. 
So Stephanie was described as a fun-loving girl who was always on the go, super social and wanting to do things. She had a ton of friends and was just a social butterfly. And even though she was only 12 years old, her family says that she was always putting others before herself. She was super selfless and just wanted to help everyone. And everyone who knew Stephanie loved her and she was just a very special little girl, just such a joy to be around. So Stephanie was murdered sometime between late at night on January 20th, 1998, or in the very early morning of January 21st, 1998. Cheryl, her mom, said that the night of the murder, she was in her room when Stephanie came into her mom's room, knocked on the door to tell her that she was going to bed and that she loved her. And Cheryl told her that she loved her back and unknowingly to both of them, that would be the last time they would ever speak to each other again. So on January 21st, 1998, it was a Wednesday and Stephanie's grandma, who I was, I wasn't able to find if she lived with them or if she didn't live with them. I'm pretty sure she did live with them. So Stephanie's grandmother that morning, according to her, said that she walked down the hallway to go wake up Stephanie and by the time she got to her room and pushed the door open, she saw Stephanie lying on the ground in the doorway on the floor and she screamed at the top of her lungs to Stephen, Stephanie's father, and Stephen came over and her grandma kept saying she's covered in mud, she's laying on the floor, she's not waking up, and what the grandma didn't realize at that point was that Stephanie was actually covered in blood, not mud. So obviously at this point, Stephen, Stephanie's father, is hysterical and he immediately calls 911, says that he needs an ambulance, police, anyone to just come and help his daughter. And when authorities arrived at their house, they saw Stephanie lying on the floor covered in blood. Stephanie had been stabbed nine times and unfortunately had died as a result of that. And let's talk about the crime scene for a second. So Stephanie was murdered in her room right? So she was murdered in her room, but there was no sign of forced entry in her bedroom or at any part of the Crow house. The window to Stephanie's room was found unlocked, but she did have a screen, you know how some windows have screens. Um, She had a screen on the window, but that seemed to be perfectly intact. It didn't look ripped or that it was popped on and off. It looked completely normal, but there was also a sliding glass door in her parents' bedroom that was unlocked as well. And I mean, I don't know how heavy of a sleeper you have to be to not hear someone coming into your room through a sliding glass door. I'm not quite sure. I know if it were me, I would definitely wake up, but that is just me. Um, And even more than that, though, the police were unable to find any fingerprints and the knife that had been used to stab Stephanie has still to this day never been found. So those are just some things to keep in mind as we go through this entire case. So because of the lack of forced entry that was shown, police were really starting to look at the inside of the household, that it could have either been a family member or someone who was close to the family, maybe if anyone had a key. We saw this with the Asia Degree case, how a lot of people were saying that maybe, you know, someone came into the house or maybe it was a family friend or someone like that. So kind of the same questions were circulating in this case too, but who they really honed in on, who the police really honed in on was Stephanie's older brother, Michael. 
And not only Michael, it was Michael and his two friends, Joshua Treadway and Aaron Hauser. So Josh and Aaron were 15 years old, and like I said, Michael was 14 at the time. And Michael was described at the time as a shy kid who had a few close friends but wasn't super social. Um, he liked to read, he liked to play video games, and he kept to himself most of the time. And the morning of the murder when police arrived, police say that Michael seemed very quiet, very distant, and very preoccupied. He was playing video games basically while his family was dealing with the sudden and horrific loss of their daughter. And prosecutors really honed in on that when it came time to, for the trial, which we'll get into in a second. Spoiler alert. Um, but a lot of people had a really big problem with that, the fact that he seemed so detached from it. So like I said, police were really focusing in on Michael. And so they asked Michael what he remembers about that night. And Michael says that he remembers going to bed and that at about 4.30 in the morning on January 21st, he woke up with a headache. So he walked to the kitchen to get some Tylenol. Michael said that when he got his Tylenol, he had a glass of milk to go with it. And then he walked back into his room and he shut the door. Police had a really, really big problem with this because they thought that even in the dark, Michael should have seen something wrong with Stephanie. So basically to break this down, they're saying that he was up in the early hours in the morning, he walked past his sister's room, like their question was how did you not see anything wrong at that point because like i said when the grandmother found stephanie the next morning she was kind of in the doorway kind of in the doorway of her room so she wasn't on her bed she wasn't like you know hiding out of plain sight she was basically lying in the middle of her doorway so police thought obviously you would see that if you were walking past her room and michael's room was directly across from stephanie's and when stephanie's body was found like i said it was in the doorway but even with this michael was still adamant on the fact that he didn't see anything and you know i have never been in this situation um but i can only imagine like it's definitely one of those things i feel like where he wasn't looking for anything like he wasn't looking to see you know, if something was wrong with his sister, he wasn't looking to see if someone had murdered his sister. He was just focused on going to get Advil and going back to his room or Tylenol and going back to his room. And I just, you know, it's one of those things where he wasn't looking for it. It's probably not a thought that crossed his mind. So why would he see that? But at the same time, you know, she was in the doorway. So but at the same time, it might have not have happened at that point. So it could have happened afterwards, could have happened beforehand. We just really don't know. So police brought Michael in for an interrogation. And at first he stuck to his story that he was not responsible for Stephanie's murder. And if you watch the interrogation video, which you can find it online, at first Michael is clearly upset. He is hysterically sobbing and crying, asking the police why they're questioning him on his sister's murder because he didn't do anything to her. And the police basically turned him against his whole family at that point. That's basically the tactic they used. The police told Michael that it was either Shannon, their grandmother, their mom, or their dad, or him. Like, one of them had to have killed Stephanie. So they basically asked Michael, like, if it wasn't you, it was one of your family members. So which one was it? And after two days of questioning, two days straight of questioning, Michael finally confessed Michael told the police, all I know is I'm positive I killed her. That's the quote that he said. 
And his motive behind this was basically sibling rivalry. He said everything Stephanie did, she would get so much more attention than he did. And everything she did was a threat to him. And everything Michael could do, she could match and she could do better than him. And that just wasn't right. He went on to say that every time he was going in to be the spotlight or the center of attention, she would just go ahead and grab it from him. And that was basically all the police needed in order to take Michael to trial. But now let's talk about Michael's other two friends, Josh and Aaron. So Josh Treadway was described as a shy, artsy kid. He described himself as a pretty normal guy. I don't know what else you would describe yourself as, but that is how he described himself. Aaron Hauser was also described as a very good kid, and the only trouble he had ever gotten into up until this point was being late to class. And Aaron had a collection of knives that was given to him as a present from his grandfather. And according to his parents, one of the knives was missing. And obviously, that is a very big red flag for police because they're already looking at Michael. Now they're looking at his two friends. One of the friends has a knife collection and one of the knives is missing. So they're kind of putting it all together as this goes along. And the knife that was missing was then found at Joshua's house underneath his bed. And when Josh was asked about the knife, Josh said that he had taken it from Aaron because Aaron told him to get rid of it. And police thought that one of the knives looked like the one that could have been used to kill Stephanie. And when the police brought in Josh for questioning and asked him where he got the knife, like I said, he said that he got it from Aaron who told him to get rid of it, hide it, and don't let anyone find out about it. Police questioned Josh for 12 hours 12 hours straight we're talking a 15 year old for 12 hours straight with no attorney no parents just him which just is so not okay for so many reasons and two weeks after his first interrogation josh came back in Josh told police that his job in the murder was to be the lookout and make sure everything went according to plan and also to dispose of the knife when it was done. So two weeks after his first interrogation, Josh came back into the police station and was questioned again. Josh actually confessed to the murder this time. He told police that his job in the murder was to be the lookout and to make sure everything went according to plan and also to dispose of the knife when it was done. Josh told the police that Michael was supposed to go into Stephanie's room and keep her quiet and cover her mouth while Aaron was the one who was supposed to do the actual stabbing, which is just so god awful. So then after hearing Josh's confession, the police brought Aaron in. Aaron to this day has actually never confessed to the murder, but instead he told police how he thought something like this would be carried out. He told police where Michael would have stabbed Stephanie if he were to do so. He told police how he would keep her quiet. And something to note about Aaron in the interviews that I've seen of him, and he's very smart and very methodical. Everything that he says is very calculated, and he's definitely smart in what he does and does not say. He never says too much, but definitely says enough to the point where you kind of believe him, I guess. Um, In his police interrogation, Josh actually said that he was afraid of Aaron and never wanted to be alone in a room with him again, which is a pretty big statement to say about one of your friends. So police now think that they have locked this thing down, right? They have their confessions, they have their killers, it should be a case closed. But this was far from the truth. This case is far from over. And soon after they made their confessions, all three of the boys then recanted their statements and took back everything they said to police. So now police are back at square one. 
All three boys said they were under very intense pressure. And in interviews that Michael has done later on, he said that the police are very good at wearing you down and getting you to a point where you don't even trust yourself. He said you can't trust your memory, and that's why he said some of the things that he did. Josh said something about how heavy the pressure was when you're being interrogated for something like this. And I mean, I can only imagine, like these are people who, like police are people who are trained and detectives are trained to get inside of people's minds. And we're talking about 15 year old boys who are so impressionable and so vulnerable especially when they have no parental guidance you know they're looking at the detectives as the people who are trying to help them and they are very easily easily manipulated and as far as michael's relationship with his family through all of this if you're wondering about that michael's family believed he was innocent from day one michael's father steven said that the boys would have nothing to gain in murdering stephanie and that nothing about them being the ones to have carried this out made any sense to him and he never believed it from the day he heard it So regardless of their recanted statements, all three boys were put on trial for the murder of Stephanie Crow. And when it came to Josh's public defender, her name was Mary Ellen Attridge. Mary Ellen was actually a very, very smart woman. So Mary Ellen came out and did an interview saying that there was absolutely no physical evidence in this case to prove that any of the boys had anything to do with Stephanie's murder. And even more so, she believed that the police set up the boys. She said that the confessions that they had are not confessions because they are lies that were coerced by the police department. So I'm going to quickly pause on talking about the boys for a second and kind of veer in a different direction about another suspect in this case because there will be evidence talked about this suspect in the boys' trial. So on January 20th of 1998, the night of the murder, authorities received multiple phone calls from people who lived in the same neighborhood as the Crow family. And these phone calls were basically of people complaining of a man who was aimlessly just walking around their neighborhood. And he wasn't just you know, going for a casual little stroll. This man was a huge disturbance to everyone. He was coming up to people's front doors. He was knocking on people's doors. And when they wouldn't answer, he would just keep like, he would knock on the door and just yell and keep walking. And one man actually said that this guy came up to his door. And when he asked what he was doing and what he was looking for, the man who came up to his door said he was looking for the girl, which then the guy whose house it was followed by saying there was no girl here and he needed to keep on walking. So some people who called in to the police department this night and said that there was a man walking described him as wearing a red shirt, appearing to be very disoriented. One woman even said that he had Charles Manson eyes because he looked so crazy. This man's name is Richard Tewitt. And Richard was a man in his late 20s at the time. He was about 5'7 in height and someone who was definitely not a stranger to police. Richard had a long criminal record, including charges of burglary, trespassing, and assault with a deadly weapon. And he has also been diagnosed as a schizophrenic in his late 20s, he was diagnosed. And Richard's mom says that his family had taken Richard to the hospital about 30 times. And Richard was known to wander the streets of Escondido on a pretty regular basis. And so Richard at the time apparently had some weird obsession with a woman named Tracy Nelson. And Tracy basically met Richard when she was 15 years 
years old. I saw this interview of her saying that she met Richard when she was 15 years old. And at that time, her and Richard would just get really high together and they were very into drugs and definitely had a very big party lifestyle that they were living. And Tracy said that it wasn't abnormal for Richard to become paranoid after doing drugs, which isn't really abnormal for anyone. According to Tracy, sometimes Richard would start thinking that people were watching him and following him and would definitely just kind of talk himself into a state of paranoia and really just kind of lose his mind over it. And the day following the murder, Richard was taken into custody by the police, but was later released because they had no incriminating evidence against him. So this case is about to get really, really crazy. So buckle your seatbelts. <laughs> Okay, we're going to take a short break, but we will be right back with more of the Killer Instinct podcast. Imagine an app designed to make you use it less. Seems a little counterproductive, right? Well, Apartments.com's Instant Alert feature works exactly that way. Instead of scanning rental listings a million times a day, simply set and forget your search to whatever you're looking for in a place and let Apartments.com do the rest. From pet-friendly apartments to balconies to in-unit ACs, Apartments.com's powerful search tools let you know when the perfect combination of features you're seeking is listed. So you don't have to power through rental descriptions one by one. With more rental listings than anywhere else, Apartments Apartments.com's instant alerts mean that you can spend less time looking for the perfect place and more time on just doing you. Apartments.com, the place to find a place. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, you guys, welcome back. So when police took Richard into the station initially, the day after the murder, to question him, they reportedly took some of his clothes to test them for DNA evidence, or at least that's what they said they were going to do. The clothes that Richard had been wearing that day, like I said, he was wearing a red sweatshirt, a white t-shirt underneath his sweatshirt, and pants. And turns out the police only tested for DNA on the white t-shirt that he was wearing underneath the sweatshirt and not all of the clothes that he was wearing in general. And when Mary Ellen, who was Josh's public defender, looked more closely at Richard's clothes because she was the one who figured all this out. When she looked more closely at Richard's clothes because she was trying to get a good defense going, um, she noticed something on the red sweatshirt. First of all, she noticed that it had never been... um, tested for DNA at all, but she also realized that there was something different and there was a mark on the red sweatshirt that had never been tested. And after seeing whatever she thought she had saw, she demanded to the police that all of the clothes to be sent out for DNA testing. So all the clothes that Richard was wearing should be sent out for DNA testing, which should have happened at the very beginning. I don't know why it hadn't. So five months later, on the first day of the trial, the results came back and Mary Ellen got a phone call. The phone call was from the DNA lab that said that they found three spots of Stephanie Crow's blood on Richard Tewitt's sweatshirt. Let me repeat that. Three spots of blood 
not just any blood, Stephanie Crow's blood on Richard Tuitt's sweatshirt. And when Mary Ellen received this news, better yet, when the boys and their families received this news, everyone was ecstatic because they finally felt like this case was moving in the direction that it should have been moving all along. So when this news came out and the prosecution, who was trying to convict all three of these boys of a crime that they now weren't so sure that they committed, the prosecution was in absolute shock. The judge had actually put a freeze on the trial and now it was the prosecutor's job to figure out how the blood got onto Richard's sweatshirt. Hmm, I wonder how blood got on Richard's sweatshirt. And the prosecution's defense in missing this major, major telling piece of evidence was that the shirt was dirty and had stains everywhere, so they didn't think it was that important. That is the worst excuse I have ever heard for any... Like, that's not even an excuse. That's not a defense. That is nothing. What do you mean you thought the shirt was dirty so you didn't think it needed to be tested? Of course it needs to be tested. It needs to be tested even more at that point. And you let these three young boys, like besides that fact, that whole fact of you needed to test this point blank, the fact that you didn't is absolutely mind blowing. But you let three young boys go through hell of countless hours of torturous questioning, one of which was being questioned for the murder of his own sister because you thought a piece of evidence wasn't important. And I think this case is really telling when it comes to police coercion. And there's so many cases out there where police almost pinpoint who they want to be guilty in this case and make it happen. And especially when the kids are so young and so impressionable and vulnerable, having them be questioned the way that these three boys were questioned is just unacceptable. And I do want to point out, this is not to generalize or stereotype detectives or police or law enforcement because because I know that a lot of detectives and investigators are so incredibly good at their job and we are so lucky to have people like that who are so dedicated to finding the truth. Like, I don't want this to be, you know, me talking about how shitty detectives and law enforcement are. That's not what I'm trying to get at. What I'm trying to get at is that police coercion and false confessions happen a lot more than I think any of us would ever realize. And like I said, this isn't to generalize, but it is a definite problem that we struggle with in our society is having these false confessions. With that being said, though, let's just move on to the trial. So six weeks after the trial was put on a freeze, the boys were all cleared of their charges. So all three boys were now cleared, but this came with a little loophole. The exception to this was that they could be charged again. Richard Tewitt, on the other hand, was actually in jail at this time for a burglary charge, and the prosecution was very hesitant to try him. And a year passed and the case was kept on a stagnant, but after a year, the state attorney general took over this case, which thank God he did. So this senior investigator with the San Diego Police Department was named Vic Kaloka. I don't want to butcher that, but I'm awful with names. So Vic Kaloka is, I'm pretty sure what his name was. And he really looked into this case from start to finish. And according to him, when he watched back the police interrogation tapes, he was in shock. And he was in shock for a couple reasons. First off, like I said, when the boys were talking to the police, none of them had lawyers present with them when they were being interrogated. And they were also being isolated from their parents. 
during the tapes, the boys were asking, can I see my parents? Can I talk to my parents? I need to go to sleep. I've been up for hours. And it was honestly really sad watching these boys being interrogated. You can, like I said, watch the interrogations online, but they were being deprived of sleep and questioned for hours on end. And Michael in particular was so upset and crying and being hysterical and said multiple times to the police that he thought that he didn't do it, but is now confused with what the police were telling him and that if he does tell the police a story, it would just be a lie. And like I said, the whole thing was really sad to watch because it's clear that all three of the boys are just being brainwashed. And like I said, this isn't to generalize all law enforcement because a very, because not all law enforcement is like this. But, and I'm just talking about this case in particular, this was handled so poorly. And you can obviously imagine how Michael is feeling at that point. Not only was his sister brutally murdered, but now he and his friends are being looked at as the prime suspects. And police are basically telling him, you can watch it in the tapes, like I said, police are telling him, you did this, like you did this, tell us you did this and we can like we can help you out. You probably did this because of X, Y, Z. Like basically telling him the story that they wanted to hear for him to tell it back to them. So Vic Coloca really focused on Michael's interrogation tape and saw the police drill into Michael's head this story of how he picked his sister up off the bed after murdering her and placed her on the ground in the doorway. So police really just, that's the story that they were brainwashing Michael into thinking that he did. And they drilled this so deeply into Michael until Michael told them that he did pick her up off the bed and then he dropped her. And so he just kind of left her there. And this was like hitting the jack pot for Vic Coloca because he said that factually with all the evidence that the police have that's not what actually happened and it's impossible for that to have happened so Vic Coloca then interrogated Richard to it and Richard actually admitted to him that he went into the crow house that night but denies killing Stephanie let me just reiterate that again so Richard told Vic in his interrogation he did go into the Crow household, but he did not murder Stephanie. And like I said, the parents' sliding glass door was unlocked. Stephanie's window was open, even though it had a screen. That was also unlocked. And even though her blood was found on her sweatshirt, Richard says that he did not kill her. So Richard was then arrested for the murder of Stephanie Crow four and a half years after he was first questioned. So we are now talking almost five years after this murder, Richard is now getting pinned for this. But then it gets better. So Richard escaped. <laughs> yeah, Richard escaped prison during the lunch hour of his jury selection for his trial. So police were now on a wild goose chase for Richard Tewitt. And for his trial, Richard really tried to look the part of a clean cut, innocent guy. If you see his mugshot for the night that Stephanie was murdered and then the person who was sitting in the trial, it literally looks like two completely different people. He shaved, he got a haircut, he had no beard anymore. Like it was literally not the same person. But even though he tried to escape, it did not last very long because three hours later, he was caught and yet again arrested. 
So when Richard's trial started, it was pretty interesting because not only did the prosecutors have to prove that Richard was guilty of murdering Stephanie Crow, but they also had to prove that Michael, Josh, and Aaron were innocent because the defense were going to try and prove otherwise. Like the defense's argument was going to be that the three boys killed Stephanie, not Richard. The prosecutor's argument had to be that the three boys were innocent and that Richard killed Stephanie. Richard's mother, as well as his sister, were at the trial to support Richard. And in interviews that I've seen of them, they have said that there is absolutely no way that Richard would have done something like this. They say that he was just a young man who was full of promise, who got led down the wrong path. And do I think that, you know, they would come on an interview and say that Richard is an evil murderer who killed Stephanie? No, I don't. Um, But his mom and his sister even went as far as to say that he is the victim of all of this, that Richard, the man with Stephanie's blood on his sweatshirt, is the victim of all of this. And people should feel sorry for him. That is what his mom and his sister said, that people should feel sorry for Richard. And personally, to me, their thoughts are pretty irrelevant because even though they might not want to believe Richard never did anything like this, there are certain facts that do not lie. As the trial kept continuing more and more and more and more evidence was coming out about Richard, not only did the lab find Stephanie's blood on his red sweatshirt, they also found it on the white t-shirt as well. What I don't understand personally is the police said that the white t-shirt is the only thing that they did test for DNA. So how was this not found out sooner? That's what really blows my mind. And obviously the average person would say, there's blood on the sweatshirt, there's blood on the t-shirt, he said he went into the house that night, it has to be him. about it how in the world would a random man have the blood of a murdered 12 year old if he had nothing to do with it you know it doesn't make any sense it's not like he knew stephanie this wasn't someone he knew it wasn't a family friend these were two two complete strangers one has the blood of the other on his clothes and that's the fact The defense, however, was not having it. The defense said that the blood was transferred to Richard's clothes by the police, who, when they were kind of figuring out all their evidence, and when the police was gathering evidence, must have gotten blood on the clothes of Richard when they took Richard's clothes. So basically, the defense is saying that when the police took Richard's clothes for examining and for possible evidence, they mixed it in with Stephanie's blood from other articles of evidence, and that's how the blood got on the clothes. I also read something that said that Richard had actually claimed that to have randomly found the sweatshirt while dumpster diving, but that doesn't make a whole lot of sense considering the people who called the police on him that night said he was wandering around, and they claimed to see him in the exact same sweatshirt that he had been found in that had the blood on it. So all three boys, Michael, Josh, and Aaron testified at the Richard Tewitt trial, and they all said that they were coerced and only said certain things because they felt under pressure and were so young at the time that they didn't know what was really going on. After a three-month-long trial against Richard Tewitt and an eight-day deliberation from the jury, the jury found Richard Tewitt guilty of voluntary manslaughter and was sentenced to 13 years in prison, but then was added four more years due to the fact that he escaped on the first day of his trial. Voluntary manslaughter is a term that basically means that Richard did kill Stephanie Crow, but without malice and without premeditation. I don't know how you stab someone nine times without malice, but that's just me. 
Um, Stephanie's parents were happy to finally have some sort of justice for Stephanie. They were just happy to finally put some sort of closure to this nightmare that they had been living for the past like five plus years at this point. And Vic Coloca is someone who really should be praised in this case because he is the one that turned this case around and put it in the direction that it needed to go in. Watching his interviews literally gave me chills because of how devoted he was to getting this done the right way. But then... And this is where I get super frustrated. So in 2013, after many attempts of appealing his case, Richard Tewitt was acquitted in a retrial. After serving only eight years, his conviction was reversed and he was released from prison. The defense said that there was no evidence or DNA linking Richard to the crime scene that night considering there was no forced entry and there were no fingerprints left at the scene. A lot of people think that Richard is just a really lucky criminal who was able to complete a seamless murder without leaving a trace of evidence, but some people think that he isn't that lucky and he didn't do it at all and that the actual murderer is still out there walking the streets. Michael, on the other hand, wants justice as well. He says to this day, he is constantly reminded of the fact that he was once looked at as a suspect in his sister's murder. And Michael just wants an apology from the people who made his life a living hell just because they could, essentially. Michael is now married and trying to live his life as normally as possible. I personally feel a lot of sympathy for Michael. He was broken down by police during his interrogation videos, and they are heartbreaking to watch because you can tell he knows he did not do this, but he was putting his trust into the people who were making him think that he did. And it was just really sad all the way around. So for me, there are two possibilities here. Possibility number one, Richard Tewitt murdered Stephanie Crow. Possibility number two is that someone who has not been looked at yet murdered Stephanie Crow and that person is still walking free. To me, the fact that there is blood on the sweatshirt is just something I cannot shake. I have no idea why there would be blood on that sweatshirt if he did not have anything to do with it, along with the fact that he admitted to being in the Crow's house that night. Like, what? <laughs> um, I can't get over the fact that he was walking through the neighborhood and other people saw him. The fact that this man has been placed in multiple locations that night. But then I come back to the fact of how traceless this was, you know? The fact that there was no fingerprints. The fact that there was no forced entry. And that's where I feel like this had to be thought out in some way, you know? Is it really just this guy's luck that he was able to go through some unlocked entryway without being heard stab stephanie nine times and then leave without being seen like that does not make a whole lot of sense to me and it really that's where i get hung up on well maybe it wasn't richard because i do not think that richard is smart enough to have completed this without leaving a trace is it impossible? No. Could he have done it? 110%. But I just don't know. I really, really don't know. I'm really stumped on this. I, you know, going through it the entire way, I was, Richard did this. You know, Richard 100% did this. I was so set in my mind that that is what happened here. But now when I really think about it, like the fact that, you know, no one has been able to prove physically that this happened. There were no fingerprints. There were no nothing. And that's where I think the premeditation comes in because I don't think that if he went in there and stabbed Stephanie nine times, 
that he wouldn't leave a fingerprint. So how did he not? How did he leave so tracelessly? And that's where I really get stumped on this. So I am so curious to know what you guys have to say about this, what you guys think. Definitely let me know on Instagram or on Twitter. It's at Savannah Brimer both ways. If you want to email my email, you can do that as well. It is just killerinstinctpodcast at gmail.com. There you can leave me case suggestions as well as your thoughts on the cases I've already covered. But that is going to be it for me today, you guys. Thank you so much for tuning into another episode of Killer Instinct. I hope you enjoyed it. If you are new here, make sure you go ahead and hit that follow button. That way you never miss an episode. I post weekly podcast episodes on Apple Podcasts as well as Spotify. And I hope to see you back here next week with a brand new episode and stay safe.